0: Your host, and today with me, I have our art director David Kimmick. Hello. Our web developer Tim. Hello. And our designer Allie. Hiya. How are you guys? How are you? Um, what's the coping? Is that a good twenty twenty?
1: Coping with COVID twenty twenty. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, we've been pretty lucky. Um, most of our work has pretty much remained the same throughout all this, so we've been cranking out a bunch of awesome new websites lately. And that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. Um, So at Tower, we view accessibility for all of our websites as an essential. It's not an add-on. It's in every website that we create. Um, We work at least to the AA standard. Um, It's something we've put a lot of time and attention into because, you know, the Internet's for everyone. And we want to contribute to a more accessible online space. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, Kimmick, would you like to kick
2: us off?
1: Sure. I think something really interesting that I sort of came across... It's sort of like the, I not want to say bare minimum, but it is becoming sort of the bare minimum that when you're thinking of designing for accessibility, you think straight to just, okay, I need to make sure my colors contrast. Um, and for a lot of people that works, um, you know, for the past couple of years, like, you know, Zoom has changed their leave meeting, which I know that's a big thing right now. Um, it used to be red on black, but obviously anybody with any sort of color blindness couldn't see that. Um, so they simply just changed it to white on red. Um, even Google uh, Chrome has introduced sort of different simulators so that you can see sites in um, sort of different versions of color blindness um, without having to sort of, you know, guess what it would look like for them. Um, mm-hmm. But it's sort of becoming this point where just changing the colors to have this the right level of contrast isn't enough or maybe isn't the right approach. Um, so there's been this movement recently to sort of take a non- Color based approach to color blindness or any sort of visual imparity. Um And it's like, what does that mean? Like, okay, non color. <laughs> so everything's just black and white now. Um, but no, it's like even making everything just black and white is a color approach to it. Um, so what you're seeing now is a lot of push to move things towards pattern based things. Um, so instead of having a change in color, you would change a pattern. You would have a certain pattern, or it would be a visual indicator. Um, think like old school, um, even I guess Apple still does this on there. Like, when you go into your, your alarms, it's a physical toggle switch that goes from left to right. Um, it doesn't matter that it changes the green to red, you literally see the visual has changed, um, which is great. First off, that we're talking about visuals on a podcast. <laughs> I'm just thinking, like, I'm trying <laughs> right. to, like, use hand motions, and I'm like, that's not going to work. Um, so, you know, you, you can see it in your own phone if you look at it right now. Like, there's those non-visual cues, um, and there's sort of this push to do more of that. Um, something more recently that actually most of you might have, like, realized, um, Spotify has switched um, their shuffle button. It used to just be that you'd hit it and it would turn green. But for a lot of people, I think it's some 300 million people who suffer from colorblindness in the U.S., Um, They didn't see that. They didn't know if their songs were on shuffle. Um, And I think we can all agree the most aggravating thing is listening to an album, and you know what Mm -hmm. song comes next, and then you realize it's on shuffle, and it destroys the entire album. You have to start over. Um,
0: Especially when there's, like, a transition song.
1: Right? You you need Yeah, all those songs that, like, were just, like, that buttery smooth, and you're like, wait, did the song change? Anyway, um, so Spotify just added the simplest thing. When you hit shuffle now, there's just a little dot below it. And it's just the smallest little thing that shows that there is a change of state um, other than just color. Um, it's nice because also for people who aren't colorblind, it's still a quicker read a lot of times. And, like, also, too, like, if you're sort of new to a program, you don't know if, like, if it's, like, a button. You don't know if white is the active state, blue is the active state, green. Like, you don't know. You just kind of have to click it and wait to see what changes. Um so that's another example of Spotify doing that. Um, Trello, I know a lot of us use that here um, at Tower, sort of as an auxiliary, like day planning thing. Um, mm-hmm. They've added a colorblind mode where it's simply um, it uses patterns and explanatory text on top of what's already there. Um, I, I think use that
0: because it's pretty, right? <laughs> and that's
1: the thing; like it's visually pleasing. I think what's nice is, yeah. is usually when. A lot of designers will sort of get themselves into this this sort of groove where it's just like, well, I'm going to alter the color slightly until it works. Mm-hmm. And then you're sort of not working with the color palette you wanted originally, um, or you have to make compromises. And it's sort of when you take this more pattern approach or this visual approach that doesn't rely just on color, I feel like you can get something a little bit more interesting. Um, and like you said, like, it looks better. Like, I like that colorblind approach to uh, Trello as well because it just – it has a cooler look to it. Um and you're starting to see this more in the default. Um, even Apple has introduced, uh, I believe it's like a non-color, I forget the name they have for it, it's something marketing and fancy sounding, but it's just a non-color based interface uh, where it is all pattern based and very straightforward for Apple devices. Um, and it's just, it's, it's, it's interesting to see this. Um, I know something they mentioned in the article um, was simply that like, as you see these larger companies doing it, it's going to slowly become the standard. Um, and I think it's something interesting that we might see in the coming years is that, we're not so worried about uploading all our, you know, color palettes to, um, what's it called a contrast grid or anything like that, where it kind of shows you the, you know, is this is double A compliant. Is this triple A compliant? Is this okay? Past 18 point font. It's going to be more of like an evergreen approach where it's simply, okay. I know that when I hit this button, it's going to activate a visual cue, um, to show that other than just color. Um, so yeah, I just thought that was really interesting, um, that sort of shift right now as we all kind of settle into like, okay, yeah, like colorblind people exist and we need to accommodate them. And now it's like, well, maybe that first idea of how we accommodate them wasn't the best idea. And maybe there's a better way to do this.
0: Yeah, that's really neat. Because I know I obviously I used to work in design and working with the contrast grid. Sometimes I would find myself being like, seriously changing it just like 1% darker You're telling me everyone, whether you're looking at your phone on a sunny day outside, like that's going to help. Right. And sometimes, yeah, sometimes I don't think it's enough. So that's really neat to kind of see that conversation evolve from oh, here's a constraint that we must follow Mm -hmm. and I need to make this brand color slightly darker and a different, you know, a different Pantone or whatever. Whereas now it's like, what does this permit me to do design wise that can be fun and fresh and different and make it better UX, honestly, probably for everyone, even people who can see color perfectly.
1: Right. And like you said, like, it's kind of hard to plan for those sunny days. Um, Does somebody have one of those amber overlays on their screen so that, you know, it doesn't hurt their eyes? is um, somebody running on a monitor that, you know, they got at a going out of business sale and it <laughs> might be from 2004 and it might not be the yeah. best monitor. Um, somebody might have just messed up. Like, you know, you think if you're a colorblind person, you, you know, you might mess up the RGB settings on your monitor. You might do something weird. Um, and it's just there's so many things that you really just can't plan for. Um, and taking this non-color based approach to colorblindness, as weird as that sounds, um, is just a more evergreen, safer uh, territory to make sure that, again, the internet is as accessible as it can be.
2: That's very cool. Yeah, so one of the things I commonly run into when, especially when we're doing website builds, are mainly like content-based. So the common ones are usually, uh, at least when I do our ADA scans, um, failing to label images, uh, failing to label links correctly. So an example would be, is you have repetitive links that say click here that aren't very descriptive. And then another one is essentially uh, having your headings out of order. So you would go from like an H1 to an H4, or you do like an H2 then an H1. It's not really, not really kosher. I think the biggest ones that are probably most central for ADA are probably the the labeling of links and the labeling of images. Especially with images, is you have to imagine if someone is vision impaired coming to the site. And you have an image up there or like you said, it's like on a sunny day and you're using a screen reader or whatever. You have to describe what that photo is. It doesn't have to be like a, you know, uh, an essay on what the photo is. It should just be like for at least for Continental, one of our clients where there are a lot of education based and a lot of our photos are, you know, students you know, learning you could say a young child at desk looking at monitor mm-hmm. or something along those lines so it doesn't have to be a long sentence it just has to be descriptive and then like I said before uh, with links especially when you have uh, a lot of marketing links or kind of like trying to get someone's attention with a click here or submit now it, it doesn't really fly because if you have a screen reader and you have a lot of those kind of click here's in succession it's not very clear what you're doing or where you're going to yeah it, it, right. it's basically it's, it's you have to think Like with a person's short-term memory when they're going to a site and it's being read aloud to you, uh, you know, when someone says click here, it's like, okay, so what is that in relation to? Mm -hmm. So it's usually good to say if you do have to have a click here, you have to say click here and then include the entire text. So click here for forms or go to form, fill out survey, complete registration, basically making it so it's more explanatory on what the action is rather than some kind of blanket statement that's very kind of abstract.
1: I think that's interesting because that's sort of what, you know, speaking for our IM team, that's sort of what we always try and do (laughs) anyway because, like, I know, like, the worst thing you can show um somebody like on our SEO or IM team is like boring button text um they really like the descriptive <laughs> stuff so like it's kind of interesting to like know that that also just like helps in with the screen reader stuff yeah. um
0: my other beef is always um photos that have text in them mm. you need to include that in the alt text then mm-hmm. cuz i think you see things all the time where I feel like sometimes SEO and content, and I'm guilty myself of this, we look at alt text as like another place to include our core keywords or what we're Mm. talking about, trying to push what the purpose of the article is. But that's not the point of it. The point is to literally be descriptive for someone who can't see that photo. Um, And I know it always says, like, if it's decorative, like you don't need to include anything. It's literally for functionality. So I think that's important. to Remember, it's got to be like a true description. If there's a a sign that says something in it, you need to have like a sign reads, hey, don't walk there or whatever. Like it has to be descriptive of what's in the photo so
2: yeah th- there is actually a, an aria attribute mm-hmm. for images for where like if you have just like a decorative image you just say uh role equals presentation mm-hmm. and that just makes it like it's just a fancy graphic we don't need to gotcha. like, describe yeah. like some swirl some dab of paint or whatever that's used for an accent it's just no it's yeah. just presentation mm-hmm. you can ignore it yeah.
3: Yeah, I, I never realized how many websites aren't using that method um, until I was in college, actually. And I worked in a job where I had a lot of interactions with blind students who used a lot of screen readers. And uh, it was always pretty interesting when they were on a very bad website, like they really just couldn't <laughs> use it. They would actually come up to me and they'd turn, on, they'd, they'd turn off their screen reader and just be like, tell me what's on this website which is horrible that they have to go to somebody else in the first place to be able to actually read the website. It's like they could read all the text, and it's really interesting seeing them interact with their screen reader, Uh, They could read all the text, but as soon as there was an image, it gets stuck. Or if things Mm -hmm. were out of order, like you said, they wouldn't actually be able to navigate the website well because the way that the screen reader dissects the websites is it actually kind of scrambles the order of everything and it puts it in that like H1, H2, H3, Mm -hmm. so they can actually jump through websites. So if things are like, oh, you have an H1 and then right after it, you have an H4, it's actually going to take that H4 and put it at the bottom so that like it's out of order again. And so they're not going to be able to read it properly. And to them, it's going to seem really scrambled. But to us, like when we're seeing it, it's not. So yeah, yeah, that, that is like really important. And I think there needs to be a little bit more awareness on like how screen readers actually break up websites and like how it reorders our websites as a whole. <laughs> yeah, very cool. So I actually love that Kimmich pointed out the toggles in Apple's UI where it actually physically changes because that is a leftover remnant of skeuomorphism that uh, was a really big style back in like a couple years ago. It wasn't even that long ago. A lot of us learned about it in college. It was like all the the rage, (laughs) uh, making things look realistic. Um, And so a few things that are left over in Apple's UI are the trash bin on Max or Mm -hmm. uh, the actual physical toggle so they look like an object that you can actually physically touch. Uh, And then that eventually transitioned into new morphism which was just kind of like this wildly different modern approach where everything was stripped down there wasn't a lot of texture which kind of goes against what Kimmich was saying so it became less usable to those colorblind people. (laughs) Uh, But, Allie, it looked so cool. It looks so cool, (laughs) if you can see it. Um, So the the problem with this was it actually stripped away the realness of objects and made them a little more flat, and then they used a floating approach. So a problem with this was suddenly things weren't texturized. They became a little harder to look at. Uh, It also added this element of depth without actually having physical space to anything. So they used shadows, which became difficult to see for people who do have some visual impairments. So they might not have color blindness, but maybe they can't really see all that well, or they have cataracts or something, preventing them from seeing everything on the screen. Uh, so those shadows weren't always visible, so suddenly everything seemed really flat to certain users. And that's where I want to go with our newest trend, which is glassmorphism, uh, which is a take on neumorphism and skeuomorphism and kind of bundling it all together but then adding these blurred out kind of overlays to make it look as if you put frosted glass over something. Uh, and the problem with this is the further away it is the more frosted and blurry it's gonna get and the closer it is the less blurry it's gonna get and depending I'm sure if you have an iPhone or a Mac, um, you've seen this. Uh, It it comes up in the applications tray on your Mac, on the new iOS update. Just scrolling down, you can see your background image will get blurred out. Uh, If you're one of those people, unlike Kimmich, who has just a blank screen as your background. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But if you have an actual image as your background, it will get blurry and it will get lighter. And sometimes the text isn't always as contrasty as it should be, depending on how you select those images. So before, you had like a very specific, oh my God, thinking back to early 2000s, like Apple had this oh. like wooden background that looked like a yeah. shelf, right? Oh my God,
1: I remember that. <laughs> That's what I'm talking right? about. They're very, very skeuomorphic,
3: very realistic, but it made it so that it was consistent. And that was like mm-hmm. the key was it was always consistent. There was always something back there that was the same color so that they can adjust the actual readability. It was texturized, like Kimik is saying. So it's like kind of adding a little bit of depth to it in that sense. Whereas this new style, depending on your your visual impairment, you might not be able to tell, oh, this is blurrier, so it's farther away. Like, everything might be a little blurry to you. So it might not show depth as well, might not show you as close as things could be. Uh, mm-hmm. So adding depth to things kind of really messes with your visuals. And then on top of that some people are getting carried away and using that depth on buttons and indicators and different items that really should not be affected by this style. Uh, Because affecting those styles kind of makes it a lot harder to see what is actually a button and what you shouldn't be touching or what, what can be clicked and what can't be clicked. So it's becoming something that could be really cool, but needs a lot of focus and a lot of attention to make sure that it's usable by everyone.
0: I'm just glad we got away from the wooden background, honestly. (laughs) I love when they first like computers came out and they were like, people aren't going to know how to use them unless we make them look like (laughs) real life. Like just now, Google finally changed their Gmail from like the envelope. You know what I mean? Like, it's finally an M. But, like, they just changed it. It is 2020. We've been sending emails for how many years? And they're finally like, okay, guys, I think they can handle it. I think that they know Mm -hmm. it's not a physical letter.
2: (laughs) I I don't like that. I I prefer the skeuomorphism because I like how it always represents a mental model. Like, for example, Mm -hmm. the save icon forever has been a floppy disk. The recycling Mm -hmm. bin has always been a literal trash bin. So Mm -hmm. you always have a a, a mental model of when you interact with a site or when you interact with something saying uh, you know you see an icon and you immediately recognize it and you know how that thing functions because you have like a tangible analog that you Mm -hmm. interact with
3: yeah and that's actually an interesting point too because in college I had a lot of friends that spoke very little English and to them using our college devices like the computers the school provided to us they were all Mm -hmm. set in English and so some things they didn't know exactly where they were if it wasn't a physical object that it resembled. Yeah. So mm-hmm. my friends from China, they saw the trash bin and they're like, throw trash in there. Uh, but yeah. then there were other things where they were like, this is just a letter. Like, I don't know what that means because I don't speak this language or I don't recognize those symbols because uh, they don't even use those characters in their language. So that, that is pretty pretty interesting to think about in that sense is like, how usable is it and how transferable is it to other languages? And can we mm-hmm. just easily throw it into a different language and not have to make too many changes to it and just say, everyone can use this, no matter where you are, where you're traveling. Like, if you're traveling to another country, would you be able to go to a kiosk and use whatever it is there, too? Yeah.
2: I think that's really big because I know one thing I really push for when I do my own designs, if I have to do something, is I go for iconography. Because if you think, like, international road signs, you know, you have international standards organizations, like they have like this is the sign you use for exit and it's like cross-cultural, you know it can be understood by anybody regardless of language. And that's really big is when you have to do uh, internationalization of sites rather than having like the sweat about, oh boy, we have to translate all these all these terms and all these words. If you just use icons, you know you, you solve half the issues right there because everyone's gonna know like, okay, if I have like that trash can icon, they know it's going to be like a delete. I know, like, with colors, there's, like, cultural things. So I know, like, in the West, red is usually, like, a color of danger. Mm -hmm. But in, like, uh, China, red is usually a symbol of, like, prosperity. So for us, that would be green. But for them, it's, like, kind of reversed. So you don't really want to use red in that case. But, yeah, I think you can actually get away with, like, what they say, like, a picture is worth a thousand words. I think using images... I think is is, can be better than using words in
1: some places. Mm
3: -hmm. If they have alt text, (laughs) yes, Yes, with appropriate alt text or A (laughs) tags.
1: It's interesting, and I feel like this could be an entire podcast of its own. Haley, take note. Uh, Great, done. uh, Just the idea of iconography and like the longevity of it. Because I know you had mentioned um, the save icon being a floppy disk. There's a whole generation of kids now who don't know what they see that as the save icon. Because I know it's just there's this great viral post. It was either TikTok or Vine, where somebody finds a floppy disk at like a Goodwill, and like, "Hey guys, I found a physical save icon." And like, the worst part was like they were not being ironic, they weren't being cute, they weren't oh being funny. God. They thought that somebody three D. I think the actual comment was like, "Hey, I think somebody three D printed the save icon. Isn't that cool?" <laughs> and it's like, "Oh my gosh, it's a floppy disk. You never used one." Um, mm-hmm. I mean, even us right here. Like, I think I might Tim and I might be the oldest here. I had very limited interaction with floppy disks. Like, they were out of style by the time I was, like, 10 or so. You Um, had the hard floppies,
2: the the three and a half. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Um, So, like, it's interesting because there is this whole idea of, like, icons. Like you said, there is universal standards. um, But even those start to degrade over time as they take on different meaning. And it's just, it's, it's a very interesting idea, the idea of, like, finding that balance between something that is recognized by all and usable by all. And I think that's kind of the struggle right now. Um, is finding that sort of middle ground that is usable by sort of everyone as possible.
0: I know. I was thinking, I was literally sitting here looking at the Bluetooth symbol on my computer and I was like, that is kind of becoming Bluetooth or like the shuffle symbol for songs or even like the little message blurb Mm -hmm. kind of shape. Like those are probably becoming the new kind of versions of like the floppy disk, the trash can. They are mental models because we've used them for so long on computers, but they didn't really come from you know the real world necessarily they're just kind of symbols that we've become so or like even like a hamburger menu we've just become so accustomed to it and the it, fact so. that we call it a hamburger yeah, <laughs> yeah oh man well i think that just about wraps it up then um so thank you all so much for listening uh, if you enjoyed this episode please leave us a review or comment uh wherever you're listening soundcloud apple podcast i think are the two big ones right now um, let us know your thoughts let us know how you are implementing accessibility see y'all next time bye